So I have had to learn the fine art of small talk in emails, right? Like, hey, person to person, like we're face to face. Like I get small talk. I'm really good at interaction and all that. But when it comes to email, like it's all business. You know what I mean? And I've noticed, like, I, I had to learn, wait a minute, you can't just, can't just send it and jump into, hey, do this. Like, so, and, and still, I'm, I have to correct myself. Like, I'll go to hit send. I'm like, oh, oh, wait. Hi, John, how are you? Hope you're doing well. Now down to business. Anyone relate to that? You, you feel that as well with email? All right, well, uh, the Apostle Paul has done small talk. As we've been studying our way through 1 Corinthians, uh, so far, we've done some of the intro small talk stuff. A couple weeks ago, I launched us into studying this book, and we looked at how he gave the typical ancient letter greeting, you know, from me to you greetings, right? And then, last week, Alex did a great job on Youth Ministry Sunday, and as he opened the word to us and showed us a passage where next what Paul does is he goes into a lot of affirmation and prayer for them, which, by the way, we know Paul's about to kick their tail. Right? Like there's a lot, it's a dumpster fire. And he has business to get to. But notice, even when it's like that, you can find something positive and affirming to offer up a blessing to people. Right? So he does that. Small talk done. Check that box. Now Paul is going to get down to business. And so we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes on to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, small talk's over, right? Down to business. And if you look back at the beginning of the passage, what you'll notice is he says, I appeal to you brothers. Now, ladies, don't check out. This is about you too. So, uh, Greek is similar to Spanish. A lot of you took Spanish growing up and remember nothing. But, uh, but if you remember the, the word for brothers, hermanos, which means brothers, but also if it's a sibling pack of men and women, brothers and sisters, you'd use hermanos. So, so it's inclusive. Greek's the same way. Okay? So this is Adelphoi, which is brothers and sisters. And what he says in there, he says, I got a report from Chloe's people. Now, who's Chloe and who are her people? We have no idea. We absolutely have no idea. They must have been people who spent time with the church in Corinth, and whether they lived in Corinth and were visiting Ephesus, where Paul is writing this letter, or whether they lived in Ephesus and were for a time in Corinth and returned, we don't know. 
But when they got to Ephesus, they delivered a report to Paul about the church in Corinth, and it is this, dumpster fire. It's a dumpster fire. So Paul writes this letter we call 1 Corinthians, and as we read our way through it, it's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. You know how when you're sitting at Starbucks and then somebody has a phone call and you hear one side and you can kind of discern what the other person might be saying? That doesn't happen anymore. People just talk on speakerphone in public now. <laughs> what is that? Why and when did this start? That should not be a thing, people. If you get one thing, no, no it's not important. Okay, but listen, so... so in this case, though, we're listening to one side of the conversation. And if, if you look in the second part of the passage, one of the things Paul talks about is baptism. And he actually brags that he didn't baptize very many people, which is kind of a strange thing for a minister to brag about. And the reason why is because baptism clearly doesn't save you. The gospel does. And so baptism was not the focus. The focus is the gospel. It saves, baptism doesn't. And so Paul could say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Very strange words if you have to be baptized in order to be saved. You see that, right? The gospel is what saves, not baptism. Because the gospel is all about what Jesus did on the cross. It's blood on the cross. It saves. Baptism is all about water in a tub. It's about what we do, and that doesn't save. It just proclaims. Now, make no mistake, baptism is still very important. It was clearly being practiced in the Corinthian church, clearly practiced by believers for 2,000 years now. We value it. We practice it. In about a month, at the end of December, where we have a baptism service. Uh, we're looking at maybe around 22 baptisms. It's going to be a great, great morning. You know those mornings. You love those mornings. It's very important. Baptism is a great thing until it's not. And, and that's what was happening in the dumpster fire. What, get at it this way. What, what if it became a thing at Redemption Chapel that those who were baptized by me particularly started to brag about that because I'm the lead pastor. Yippee skippy, right? But I was baptized by Pastor Rick, but you were baptized by Jared. <laughs> like, what if that became a thing, right? Now, some of you have been really touched by Pastor Jared's ministry, Pastor Austin, right? And so you are like, no, I'm really proud that I was baptized by Austin or Jared, whatever. And now we've got these three teams in our congregation. I'm of Rick. I'm of Jared. I'm of Austin. You know how gross that would be? Who cares? It's about Jesus, not the pastor who dunks you in water. That's silly. And Paul is saying, if that's what you're going to do with it, then I'm glad I didn't baptize you people, except just a few of you. He's, he's bragging about that, which is really interesting. Given that that's a setup in Corinth, notice what Paul didn't do. He didn't say, man, I really wish I baptized more people because my team would be bigger. You see that? Paul is not trying to get a following for Paul. Paul is trying to get a following for Jesus. And that is a rebuke to a lot of modern Christianity with celebrity pastors and preachers and sneakers. And it's gross. Paul is flabbergasted. 
that something that is supposed to exalt Christ in his gospel, something that is supposed to unify the church, has become divisive. So that if you are baptized in Jesus' name, that should unite us. But when it becomes being baptized in Rick's name, oh my goodness, that's divisive. It's gross. All right, so what Paul, you see what Paul's doing here is he is talking about baptism. He makes some important points there, but the real point is about unity. That's what this passage is about. It's all about unity. Recently, we had an event called Shades of Redemption. It was particularly for the people of color that call Redemption Chapel home. I want to just get together with them and listen and love and learn together. It's a great event. At that event, uh, one of our congregants, Alaitan, uh, spoke about her experience coming to America. She's from Nigeria. And she talked about how coming to America, she was just shocked at the racial divisions. Because that's not her experience. In Nigeria, they're all black. You get that, right? So, so she's like, I, I don't have a category for that. But listen to what she said. She said, it's not that we don't divide. You see, the enemy's scheme is always division. It's just a matter of how, not if. And so what happens in Nigeria is they wait till somebody starts speaking. Then they can recognize the tribal accent and go, oh, you're from that tribe, not my tribe, and we divide. They deal with the same problem. It's just not based on skin color. You see that? The enemy is always trying to divide. Is that happening in our country? Want to talk about Kyle Rittenhouse? And we divide into teams just like that. And it's divisive and it grows quickly, quickly. And it's also in the church. That's what's happening in Corinth, evidently. Paul gets a report from Chloe's people that there are disagreements that have led to divisions and quarrels. They're rallying around their favorite preachers, developing little teams. And it still happens in the church today. We get our little factions and divisions. Should we have an altar call every Sunday, teams, right there? Or uh, music differences in worship preferences, teams? Then you get secondary theological issues like eschatology. Holy cow, there's teams. Wow. Frequency of communion, modes of baptism, moral opinions like drinking and smoking and cussing. We got teams there. How you should dress when you come to church. You guys know we have a dress code at Redemption Chapel. You must be dressed. That's it. We don't do naked church, okay? We ain't like that, right? Got to be dressed. But there's teams about that stuff. And then what happens is we divide. It reminds me of a classical joke. It's not mine. It's been, this is a classic. It's been around for a while. I recently quoted this joke in a response to a Google review that we received as a church. We only got three out of five stars. And that just, that, that eats at me. We're like, come on, give me four. At least four. I understand if you don't give me five. Give me four, but no, we got three. And, uh, and here's what they said. This is a Calvinist church 100%. We do not believe in Calvin's false belief. They sneak it in without saying, which is so wrong. I wish they were honest about it. It's a beautiful church and everyone is so nice. Hey, good for you guys. Bad for me, good for you guys, right? But they are Calvinist. 
we love Reformed Calvinists, but they are wrong about their theology. I pray they see the error in Calvin's Institutes. Right about now, how many of you are going, what's Calvinism? <laughs> what's Calvinism? Exactly, that's the point. Calvin was a great theologian, but he makes a horrible team. I am of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Calvin. I'm of anti-Calvin. That's what's going on. And so here's part of the response. I trimmed it down just for time's sake. But I, I said, listen, if, we, if the worst we get accused of is being Calvinist, I think we're doing pretty well. <laughs> think of all the crap going on in churches these days. Like, that's the worst we got? Good. <laughs> Since that doesn't conflict with our doctrine... Uh, excuse me, no, 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 I back up. Uh, we do have members who disagree with Calvinism. Since that doesn't conflict with our doctrine, they found a home in our church family. You'd be welcome as well. We'll leave you with this joke to enjoy and consider. Here's the joke. Once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die heretic and push him off the bridge. Right? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's so ridiculous. And yet that's what was going on in Corinth, and that's still going on in the church today. Pushing brothers off a bridge. This is about unity. I want to talk about what unity is not first. Unity is not proximity. It's not the same thing. See, in Corinth, they still met together for worship and corporate teaching. They had proximity, but Paul was going for something more meaningful and deeper. And make no mistake, just because you come in here on a Sunday morning and sit next to each other, that only gives you proximity. That doesn't necessarily give you unity. It's different. It's different. Unity is also not uniformity. Unity is expressed in diversity. It's unity in the midst, even of disagreement. There's unity. You see, the problem in Corinth was not that they had disagreements. Those happen. But instead, what, what they did is they had quarreling and they had divisions, and that over secondary issues. It's not uniformity that everything is the same. Unity is based on something greater than our differences so that we can disagree without division. Think of our band. Uniformity would look like this. There's only one instrument. It's all keyboards up there. That's it. And there's only one note. Okay? 
So worship goes like this. Isn't that beautiful? Right? That, that's uniformity. That's it. Okay? Now, instead what we have is guitar, bass, drums, vocalists. Sometimes we have violinists as well as keyboard. Oftentimes we've got Jack Butcher in the corner doing who knows what, right? Like, like there's all kinds of crazy stuff. But here's the thing. They're all playing the same song. They're in tune. They're in harmony. There's unity. It's not uniformity. Do you see the beauty in that? That's what it is. Music requires diversity and unity to be beautiful. It's not uniformity. Uh, unity, third and last, is not naivete. So, unity does not ignore differences. It doesn't gloss over and paper over. It's honest about that. Like you, you and I disagree politically. Okay, we're unified in Christ. See, it's not naivete. And sometimes the differences are so significant that we actually break fellowship because it's, it's something that is in the closed hand. Here's what I mean by that. We have closed hand and open hand. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He is God himself. There's no other path of salvation. That's in the closed hand. If you disagree over that, we don't have unity. Then there's things that are in the open hand that we can disagree about, and that's okay. Now, if we disagree about something in the closed hand, yeah, we don't have unity. To say otherwise is naivete. It's not unity. That's not unity. So that's what unity is not. Now let's talk about what unity is. Unity is perspective. It's perspective. It's perspective that says there's more that unifies us than divides us. And sometimes more is an accounting thing. Sometimes it's something of more importance that unifies us than that which divides us. And you'll see that happen in America sometimes. As Americans, we we tend to be really divided on all kinds of things. Until two planes hit the towers. And on 9-11, all of a sudden a very, a country that had so many divisions was all of a sudden really unified. Because in a moment, we, it became clear there's something more important than that which divides us. You see that? That's perspective. That's perspective. And when we lose perspective, what we do is we end up pushing a brother off a bridge. We lose perspective, and we say things like, I follow Calvin, or I follow Luther, I I follow Arminius, I follow follow John Piper, I I follow premillennialism, amillennialism, whatever. You know, I follow charismatics, get our little teams. And we forget the most important thing that actually unifies us. We lose perspective. Verse 13, that's where Paul said, is Christ divided? Like, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And, and so we get our silly little teams. You want to feel it? Let me help you feel what this is like. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, and I feel the need to make sure you understand what that means. <laughs> it means you're going to answer in your mind, not with your mouth, okay? Rhetorical question. Who's preaching to you like better, me or Jared? Now you understand why it's rhetorical, right? Or maybe you grew up in youth ministry with Pastor Austin, and he's your favorite preacher. By the way, that's my daughter. 
great. Now me, him, right? Uh, she, she would tell you the reason why is because when I preach, she feels like she's a little kid and she's in trouble getting lectured. <laughs> in fact, one time, uh, Pastor Jared came in the office on a sunny morning before services and he heard me yelling at someone in my office and he's like, ooh, who's getting yelled at? And then he realized I was practicing my sermon. He goes, oh, we're all getting yelled at. <laughs> As if I'm the one that yells during preaching. Just saying, but. So here we go. So what we're going to have is three teams in the congregation. And we're going to divide and have schisms over who likes Jared better, Austin better. Rick. Do you know how gross that would be for our church? I mean, you get how stinking gross that would be. Listen, fine, have your preference. Austin and Jared are amazing pastors and great preachers. And all of us have our strengths and weaknesses. I'm fine if my daughter prefers Austin. That's fine. But come out of a sermon loving God more and loving his word more, not loving a pastor more. Come out following Jesus more. Listen, if you want to choose a team, choose Team Jesus. That's your team. Was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Jared? Stop. Let me put it a different way. I want you to fight hard for your team. Just be clear which team you're on. And you're on team Jesus. And that trumps any piddly little team that you identify with. Uh, I, I, I try to hammer this home for our staff team. It's really important to me that our staff have a great working culture and there's unity among our team. And we disagree on things and we, hey, I want to do the event this way. I want to do it this way. There's disagreement. And I realize in that moment, the most important thing is that they understand the team is more valuable than our different opinions. And so when they join up, they get an employee handbook. And in the beginning of it, there's a letter that I wrote, and here's one paragraph from that. It says, and secondly, make sure you love your staff family. Avoid a critical spirit and gossip. Care more about the tone of the team than about your idea or event. Honor each member's different contribution to our ministry. Put down your ego and take up the talon basin. In this way, we will love our Lord, love our staff family, and love the church. And then we will hear, well done, good and faithful servants. And two staff members disagree. You understand how important it is? In that moment, they understand. There's, you got your opinion, I got my opinion. There's a third thing, and there's our unity. And it's way more important. And we got to practice that as a congregation, too. It's perspective. Perspective says that the starting point is not our differences, but our unity. And if it's essential, if it's in the closed hand, yes, I will divide without hesitation or apology. But if it's in the open hand, if it's secondary stuff, then if I divide over that, I'm dying on the wrong hill. I'm pushing a brother off the bridge. There's a lot of areas, teams, with which we identify that they kind of fight against this. And here's some of them. Secondary theological differences. Put your end times, your eschatology in that bucket right there. How to run, <laughs> oh, how to run a church or worship services. Bless you. Moral differences on gray areas. 
Or how about this team, different local churches? Like, listen, if Redemption Chapel grows and grows and other churches die, sweet. Except that I don't think Jesus sees it like that at all, right? He doesn't see it like that at all. In other churches, if they preach the gospel and they're healthy and they're helping people, we're fans of them. And we want them to grow and succeed. If we shrink, they grow, but the kingdom grows overall. I'm in. We're on the same team. And every once in a while, I get a card in the mail. It's so cool. I get a card in the mail from Pastor Ron and Sherry Lanham. I don't know them. I've never met them. I can't tell you where their church is. But you can see it's not just a card. It's a gift card saying, we prayed for you. Here's somebody that gets perspective. It's not just about their little church, but they're praying for other pastors throughout Northeast Ohio wishing for their success. Somebody has perspective here and gets that we're on the same team. There's other little teams that we divide on. Things like politics. (laughs) Great Do you know the uh, insanity and the obscenity of trying to hijack the kingdom of God and trying to leverage that for some fallen political team in a fallen world? That's so gross. And then, of course, there's sports teams. (laughs) So we have Squealers fans in the congregation, and they're annoying, but love covers a multitude of sins. We need to maintain perspective. Then our congregation, we have both Browns fans and Steelers fans, and it's okay, right? And you would think it would be laughable for us to divide over sports teams when we're unified in Christ. But go to the bullet right above it. It's the same thing. You divide over your political team when we're unified in Christ? That's equally as ridiculous. It's crazy, and yet it happens in the church. And what Paul is saying in verse 10, I don't know if you caught it. He he said that he wants them all to agree. Don't misunderstand that. It's, It's not that we agree to have the same opinions. It's that we agree about the degree of importance of our differing opinions compared to our agreement about the gospel and Jesus. That's what he wants them to agree about. And that's an issue of perspective. Because unity is about perspective. Now, it's also about tone. It's also about tone. Tone means, uh, at one point Paul said that we need to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. How can we be united in the same mind? Because it's the mind of God. It's the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives that affects tone. And just think, while we're disagreeing about other little matters, what can we agree about in the midst of it? Let me show you a few things. We can agree that we are both image bearers. We can agree about eternal perspective, like, hey, in a thousand years, is this going to matter? Probably not. We can agree that we're Christian family, we're siblings, we're children of God. That's who I'm disagreeing with in that moment. i got to remember that. We can agree that we're both fallible and open to air. I take myself a little less seriously, right? We can agree our unity in Jesus trumps my little team. 
And we can agree that our tone represents Jesus just like our opinions do. It's not just our opinions, it's our tone that represents Jesus. In fact, I don't know if you caught it. When Paul lists off their teams, one of the teams he listed was, I follow Christ. That was given in a list of divisive answers. And I go, wait a minute, isn't that the right answer? How is that divisive? But time out. It, remember, it's about tone. It's about spirit. Have you ever heard somebody say something like, well, I don't know about you, but I follow Jesus. And therefore, jeez. Quit being unnecessarily divisive and blaming it on Jesus. Stop it. Even when divisions are necessary, there can be the fruit of the Holy Spirit in there. You understand, there's no daylight between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so if you are offering up your opinion and there's no fruit of the Spirit, then you ain't following Jesus. Not in that moment. Please quit pretending to represent him with a tone that does not represent him. And some people want to play by the world's rules in the church. But we have an entirely different rule book. Our rule book talks about love, serve, give, die to self, unity, glory to Jesus. That's our rule book. We belong to a different kingdom so quit trying to play the kingdom game according to the world's rules. We need a different tone. And so unity is about tone. And then lastly, it's about foundation. Paul lands that passage. He says, it is based on the gospel and Jesus. That's where he lands. Unity is not based on our opinions or our little teams. Now, what is the gospel? You were an unfixable piece of junk, but God. And Jesus invaded you. He died and rescued you all by grace. You did nothing. And then he claimed you as his own, made you his daughter, made you his son, eternally secure. You did nothing. It's all by grace. That's the gospel. Now, what if when you approach a fellow believer who has a difference of opinion on something, what if you approach them dripping with the gospel, smelling like grace? Think that might change how that interaction goes down? That would lead to unity. You see, at the end of the passage, Paul says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Wait, what? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied? How in the world can you empty the cross of Christ of its power? How could Paul even say that? Listen, when we exalt our little team, our little tribe, our little faction, when we exalt that over unity, what we are saying in that moment is there is something way more important than the cross. And we empty the cross of its power. What we're saying is, what's really, really, really cool, what's really, really impressive, it's not the cross, what's really impressive is my little team. My little corridor of theology. That's where it's at. I, okay, yeah, granted the house of God, right? Purchased by the blood of Jesus, built by the Father, filled by the Spirit, pfft, whatever, that's good for you, right? But where it's really at in the house of God is in my little hallway. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. That empties the cross of its power. It says that there is something greater and more valuable than the cross alone. And may it never be so among us at Redemption Chapel. Never. This is no small matter, folks. Listen, if you remember a couple weeks ago, I, I shared with you some of the things Paul's going to address in this letter. Immorality, incest, they're getting drunk at communion, they're suing each other in court, there's idol worship going on, there's all this stuff. He, where does he start when he gets down to business? Unity. <laughs> he starts there. Why? Because disunity, it disempowers the gospel. It tarnishes the reputation of the church. It strains the fellowship of the body. And I heard one pastor say, that is a high price to pay for an ego trip. High price to pay for an ego trip. So here's what I want you to do this week, right? I want you to live this stuff out. I want you to think, who is it that I haven't been embracing in the body of Christ that I need to embrace? What team have I been rejecting as if they're my opponent when they're actually my family? How do I need to reconcile, to welcome, to bless them, to be kind to them? Sure, there's differences, but they're family. And so what steps are you going to take this week to practice unity with believers who are different from you? Let me pray for that. Father, we come before you humbly because we got to admit each and every one of us has totally botched this area. We think a lot of ourselves and we think of a lot of our little teams. And we lose perspective. We absolutely lose perspective. We've got a terrible tone at times. But we've missed the foundation. And so would you take us right back there? so that that would just be like echoing throughout the, the congregation of Redemption Chapel, but then bleeding beyond this body right here and influencing the body of Christ. Father God, please, would your church, your body, your kingdom be unified under your cross. And we pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.